Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Peyton Menzemeyer. I am one of the ministers here at the Vero Beach Church of Christ. And one of the privileges I have on a weekly basis is hanging out with our youth. They keep me young. They keep me tired. <laughs> and one of their favorite activities of late is to keep me in the know, to keep me relevant. In fact, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where we were at Winterfest, my birthday happened over that weekend. Of course, my birthday, I'm hanging out with a bunch of teenagers. Uh, and they all pitched in, just a couple of them pitched in, and they got me, here, let me get it, a nice gold necklace. Because I guess people are wearing bling or gold or something, I don't know. Keeping up with kids these days is exhausting. I mean, everything in their life, it's like going at hyperspeed. Their activities, their interests, their relationships, like even their, even their language is moving quicker than many of us can keep up with. Like, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Here in a second, I'm going to put a couple of words up on the board. And these are words that kids are using these days. They're not derogatory. They're not offensive. They're just words. I don't know where they came up with them. I don't know who started them or how they began, but they use them. And whenever I say they use them, I mean, I'm in the high schools twice a week, and I hear kids say these kind of words in their regular conversations. So what I want to do this morning is I want to have a little game with this, though. I want to put the word up there, and I want you to just yell out what you think the word means. Just, you can just kind of say it. I'll just try to pick up a couple, um, but just say it. There is no wrong answers. Uh, you just say what you think it is. So let's start with the first one. The first word is the word yeet. Yeet. Anybody, any guesses? Yeah. Throw. Okay, to throw. Okay, yeah. It's an expression, yeah, honestly, I don't think kids really know what this word means. <laughs> I looked up a definition. It means excitement, approval, or surprise. Surprised, or if you're excited about something, you might say it. But there's also another definition of, like, to throw something. So, like, you would say, like, I yeeted my water bottle across the room. <laughs> don't know, but yeet. Uh, next word, capping. Any, any, if you're under 25, you can't play the game, so just... All right, so capping. There's also other versions of this word. Um, there's cap and no cap. So you say like, ah, oh, no cap, such and such and such. Or, oh, cap, or capping. Any guesses? What do you think capping means? Did you say groovy? <laughs> uh, no answer, yeah. None of those are right. Um, so it means lying. Where that comes from, but you would say something like, ah, no capping, like no lying, like whatever, anyway. Okay, next one. Uh, sus. 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 Sorry, the kids are correcting me in the front row. Sus. Any get? Yeah, okay, so it means uh, suspicious, which you kind of get that. I get where that one comes from. Uh, okay, one more, and I did not spell this wrong. Um, it is period t. Period. T t you have to emphasize the T at the end. Any guesses what period? T okay, yeah, you, you pretty much got it. To conclude one's thoughts, what you might think, but you have to emphasize the T at the end. It's like the exclamation point at the end of it. So, period. T I don't know. So, what I did, I wanted to have a little more fun with this. So, I got our routines together and said, okay, I want you to take all of these words and I want you to put them just in one or two sentences, just so I get an idea of what a conversation might sound like if I was overhearing. So we have two versions. The first version, aggressive, then we lighten up on the second one. So let's go with the first one. The girl was acting sus, and I tried to say, 
I was talking about here, and I was like, bruh, you capping, miss me with that period, and then I yeeted my backpack at her. <laughs> I mean, come on, isn't this great? It's like, it's like hieroglyphics, like you have to like decipher what certain things mean, and then make a, a whole meaning out of it. And that one has some words I didn't even tell you. Okay, so this is a little, little nicer version. This girl was acting sus yesterday in class, but I really liked her outfit. So I said, girl, pop off. Your outfit is on point, period. No cap. I would steal your fit if I had the money signs. <laughs> okay, you get the idea. I <laughs> this, <laughs> you never thought you'd talk about this. And here we are. So the world moves faster than many of us. <laughs> that many of us would dare to admit. Like, many of us are just trying to keep up with the world, right? We're just trying to keep up with, with conversations that are happening around us, and we have no idea what they're saying. So another way that I try to stay relevant with our teenagers is watching YouTube videos. So uh, if you don't know what YouTube is, you're not a regular YouTube video uh, visitor, it's okay. Uh, I certainly watch it at the duration that these kids can watch it, but I try to make a presence. So what YouTube is, it's, it's this website where everybody from around the world, they can just upload their videos. Um, doesn't, I mean, they have some parameters, but I mean, it's all kinds of videos. Funny videos, ridiculous videos, sad videos, educational videos, Christian videos. I mean, it's every kind of video you can imagine, you can probably find it, something like it on YouTube. So one thing I like about YouTube uh, is that it gives recommendations. So they have like this behind the scene algorithm where they take the things you're watching and the things you like and they'll kind of spit out and say, hey, if you're watching these kind of videos, you might also like these kind. Or people like you are watching these kind of videos, you might also like these kind of videos. So it just gives you these recommended. All of that to say, I had a video recommended to me of this wonderful couple that I want to introduce you to this morning. Uh, it's a couple, their names are Shane and Hannah. They're, they have an extremely unique relationship, one that I've never personally seen, um, and I've never seen one like it in person before. And honestly, I don't know why their video was recommended to me. Don't know what I was watching to get the recommendation. Uh, and I have no idea why I clicked on it in the first place, <laughs> but I watched it, and I watched more of their videos. Um, and all they are is it's just vlogs, which is, I know I'm giving you a lot of terminology you might not know, but... Uh, so vlogs are just video blogs, it's just videos about their life, is what these videos are. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I enjoy watching their videos so much is Shane, the, the guy in the relationship, he's about my age. And despite his very unique circumstances, he just has this joy that he brings into the world. And I just love watching him, I'm cracking up laughing. Uh, but what I want to focus on this morning is the unique relationship the two. So I'm going to stop talking. Let's go ahead and meet Shane and Hannah. Love is a remarkable thing, is it not? Genuine love. It causes us to do things in our life that we never imagined that we would be doing. And Shane and Hannah's relationship is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg of what's possible whenever you love somebody. I mean, love will convince you to do radical things. It will compel you to give your life up to take care of somebody else who can't take care of their own. Right? Love, it will compel you and it will convince you to risk your life and your comfort and your well-being to take care of somebody who might be a stranger to you. Love, in our case of our text this morning, it will drag you to your knees and it will inflict you with punishment that you don't deserve 
but you're willing to take so that nobody else has to. In our text this morning, in Mark, we're working through the Gospel of Mark. In our text this morning, we're going to see the failure of love, the power of it. So, if you want Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53, and we're going to read Mark chapter 14, 53, all the way through 65. And this is where we're going to be this morning. They took Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests... The elders and the teachers of the law came together. And Peter, Peter was there. He followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, they were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any. And many, they testified falsely against him, but their statements, they didn't agree. And then some, they even stood up and they gave false testimony against him. They said things like, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another one not with human hands. Yet even their testimony didn't agree. And then the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, are you going to answer? Like, what is your testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. He didn't give an answer. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At that, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you guys think? And they all condemned Jesus as worthy of death. And then some began to spit on him. They blinded him, struck him with their fists. And the guards took him and beat him. Moving to the pinnacle moment. The gospel story. Jesus, he's just been betrayed by one of his own. He was arrested in the garden. And now he's standing or kneeling before, as an innocent man, before this mockery of justice. And where are all the people who've been with him along the way? Like, like where, where are those two disciples that just a couple of chapters earlier... They said, hey, Jesus, when you rise to power, can I sit at your right hand and your left hand? Like, where are those guys? Like, like where's Peter? You know, you know, Peter, the one that said, no matter what, Jesus, I will die for you. I'll give up my life for you. Where's Peter? Now, we know he's close by. But where's he at during all of this? Gone. All of them. Gone. Like I said, Peter came back, but he's, he's keeping his distance, right? Right? The, the abandoning of Jesus is happening, and it's happened all throughout the gospel. And now we're going to see it throughout this trial. In fact, we're, we're going to see that it's not just people who are been abandoning Jesus, but it's law and justice itself. Everything is leaving Jesus aside at this moment. Tracy talked about this a little more in Bible class. 
But 72 religious people are holding this capital punishment trial, and they're breaking every law in the book and out of the book to get Jesus to the cross. They're having, they're having this trial on the Sabbath. There's a lack of witnesses. It's a private trial when it's supposed to be a public trial. They're doing whatever they can, even breaking the law itself in order to kill Jesus. It's like one of those serial killers you watch, or uh, serial killer television shows you watch on like Netflix. Like whenever you know stuff that the, that the people in it don't know yet, and you're like, oh, come on. Like they're crooked. Like the system's crooked. Like something's happening here. Where's justice? Those people, they're crooked. Where's justice in all of this? Except now you should be yelling at your Bible as you read this scene. Where's justice? And how does Jesus respond to all of these accusations being thrown at him? But he remained silent. He made no answer. You see, throughout Mark's gospel, the reader, we know something about Jesus, right? We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We've known that from the very beginning. If you remember, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, what does he say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A statement is made about Jesus at the very beginning that defines for us, the audience, who Jesus is. But nobody else in the story knows. In fact, here's the interesting part. In fact, up until this point, of this question and this conversation with the high priest, up until this point, Jesus has steadfastly silenced all proclamations of his divine status. Anywhere somebody tried to make a claim or wanted to go tell people about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he has silenced them. If you remember, the healed leper. What do you A guy who just was cured of an incurable disease. See that you say nothing to anybody. What about to the father of the little girl who was healed? What did he say to him after, after he healed her? He said he strictly charged them that nobody should know about this. To the crowd that just witnessed a deaf man receive his hearing, he charged them, tell nobody about what you're witnessing. To his own disciples, to his closest followers, they're witnessing his life and everything he's doing, and he strictly charged them, tell nobody about him. To his closest friends, when he's coming off of the mountain of transfiguration, when they just literally saw God's glory, they come off that mountain and Jesus charged them, tell nobody what you have seen. Throughout the entire gospel of Mark, Jesus has silenced all divine proclamations of who he is until now. Why now? Why in our scene? See, in order to truly understand the meaning of his person, in order to understand who Jesus is, something was missing in all of these encounters. There was a missing element that we have in our text that wasn't there. There's a missing element that allows Jesus to finally break the seal and publicly acknowledge the meaning of his person. What was that missing element? It was the necessity of his suffering. You see, only in the light of his suffering can Jesus openly divulge in his identity as God's son. And it's at this trial, right here in our text this morning, that the veil is removed. 
the secret that Jesus has protected since the beginning of his ministry, now finally able to be disclosed. Ego ami. The two words that should blow your mind. The two words <laughs> that, should, that should expand any boundary that you might have placed on God's love and grace and mercy that he has extended to you and all of his creation. It's the two words that should bring you to your knees. They should give you goosebumps. They should stir something, anything inside of you. I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah and the Savior. I am God, the creator of the universe and everything inside of it. I am the long-awaited seed that will crush the serpent head. I am the temple, the new temple that will be torn down and in three days will be built back up again. I am. And I don't want you to miss what was just said. Jesus held tightly to his identity until this moment. Until the moment that he was on his knees being sentenced to death before he confirms what everybody else has been saying about him. It is not until right before Jesus is going to be tied up and spit on and slapped across the face and mocked before he decides to publicly announce for the first time in the gospel his divine status. Because he knew. He knew you could not fully understand who Jesus is and what he is here to do until you saw and you witnessed his suffering. See, we live in a time of knowledge. Like, knowledge is power, according to us. We love knowledge. We thrive off of it, especially true in the Western world. That's why we have universities, why we go to school. That's why success is based off of what you know, not necessarily how you live. And knowledge is power, and oftentimes that creeps into our spiritual lives as well. Like, it creeps into our lives where we get to a point where we desire to study God more than we desire to follow Him. So this one's for you. Jesus believes that if you want to know God, if you want to witness the character and the nature of your creator, then you need to underline, highlight, and circle this section of your Bible. Because God, God revealed himself whenever he, un, whenever he touched the untouchable leper. We saw that earlier in the story. God revealed who he was whenever he did that. God, he revealed himself whenever he silenced the chaotic storm just using one word. Yeah, God revealed himself there. God revealed his character whenever he shared his last meal with a person who would betray him in just a couple of hours. And now God is revealing himself when he's on his knees being sentenced to death and being slapped across the face. If you haven't dealt with Jesus' suffering, if you haven't dealt with the suffering Jesus, if you don't know the suffering Jesus, you don't know God. Oscar Schindler, uh, well, he was a German industrialist, an active member of the Nazi party during Adolf Hitler. Many of you probably know Schindler from the faltering steps he took out of Nazism towards heroism. He, Schindler, he owned an enamel factory. And he would hire Jews that lived in a nearby Jewish ghetto. Now, Jewish ghettos are basically locked in places where the 
Nazi regime would put the Jews so that they could keep them, keep an eye on them, move them where they wanted them. Yes, we get to choose how much you eat, when you eat, what your living conditions are, promise to you they're not good. And so Schindler would hire people by risk of himself. He would hire workers from that ghetto so he could work in his factory and he could give them a little bit more. Later on in the war, that ghetto was going to be liquidated. He bribed the guards and the officials to let him take his workers and move them to a labor camp instead of a concentration camp where the execution would be happening. But by the time of 1944, Hitler realized the war was going to come to an soon, and it was time to expedite the execution process. All Jews were being expedited to these concentration camps, and at great, great risk of his own life, Schindler convinced and bribed the officials to allow his few workers to move to a labor camp in a safer area where their lives would be spared. See, Oscar Schindler, a man full of flaws like the rest of us, the unlikeliest of heroes, he rose to the highest level of humanity. He waded through the blood and the mud of the Holocaust to save those who had nothing to offer him, who were nothing like him. And if you asked anybody who is his acquaintances were in fact his enemies. By the end of, it, the, end of the war, penniless, Oscar Schindler 12, saved 1,200 men and women's lives. Another face you might recognize, Harry Tubman, perhaps one of the most well-known underground railroad conductors, is what they called themselves. During a 10-year span, now get this, Harriet Tubman, a black female during this time of the world, ten, over a 10-year span, she made 19 trips into southern states to save those who were inflicted by the dark, sinister grip of slavery. And she'll claim she never lost a single passenger on her treks, saving over 300 lives by the end of it. In fact, she had this, this desire for justice and equality was embedded in her. There's a story, Harriet Tubman, at just the age of 12, she was witnessing one of her masters taking a weight and about to strike one of her fellow slaves. And 12-year-old Harriet Tubman stepped in the way and took the strike on her head for herself an injury that would affect her for the rest of her life. Tubman's entire life was dedicated to saving other people. And it's stories like these, stories like Shane and Hannah, but even more so stories like Schindler and Tubman where we catch glimpses of God. It's a radical type of love. It's the fingerprint of God that's imprinted on every single one of us we can just see it a little bit better in people like Schindler and Tubman. A love that's willing to risk everything, even life itself, in order to save somebody else. These stories, they become reflections of Jesus kneeling before the religious courts. These stories, they become reflections of God's unambiguous love for each and every one of us. Because while we had nothing to offer, and we had no way of saving ourselves, Jesus came and was willing to die for each and every one of us. We are like Jews who stepped off of the cattle cars that were headed to Auschwitz. We are like slaves who are stepping over the county lines into free states. And when you finally begin to realize what has been given for us, when you finally begin to realize the nature and the character of our creator, all of a sudden, all of the trivial things that we get caught up about, all of a sudden, all of the 
things become dim in comparison to the love that's been shown for us. I mean, just try. Try if you can. Okay, try if you can. It's a little exercise. Imagine a slave worrying about what they are wearing or if they are clean-shaven before they step into freedom. Like, a, a free slave doesn't care about what, they're, what they look like. They don't care about what, they, what, what their life is. All they care is about that liberating feeling that they have whenever they step into freedom. All they can think to do is to fall on their knees, to raise their hands, to praise God, to cry whatever it is because they were a slave and they have been set free. And we have been set free as well. And your freedom, it came at a cost. You see, when Jesus affirmed his identity as the Son of God, when Jesus said the words, I am, he wasn't just saying, I am the Son of God. He was saying, I am willing to do whatever it takes to save everybody else. If you want to know God, if you want to know how much God loves you, if you want to see how far God would go to rescue you, read the words again. And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying, Prophecy! And the guards received him with blows. This is the heart of the gospel. And if you want a snapshot of the gospel, it's right here. Take your snapshot. And every week we participate in a public commitment to the mission of the gospel. If you're a server, you can begin going back and preparing the meal for us. You see, as we eat at the table of the incarnate, suffering servant of God, we also co commit ourselves to emulate that service. Here's what I mean by that, right? The meal we're about to take in, the supper that we take in every week, it's not just a proclamation of the gospel. It's not just saying, like, this is what the gospel is about and why we celebrate it every week. This meal is also binding us to the mission of that gospel. It says this gospel saves us. And now what am I doing in response to it? See, Jesus, he didn't give his life up so that we could lazily float down the cultural river and just allow the current to take us wherever it wants us to go. Like Jesus didn't suffer blows and mockery so that we could get lost in trivial debates of like style of worship or whatever other thing we think is extremely important. There's a scene in the movie The Patriot starring Mel Gibson. It always comes to mind whenever I think of this, of this moment. There's this last battle scene in the movie. It's the climax of the movie. The American forces, they're charging their attack, trying to claim their independence against the British rule. Right? And the last, it's like a last stand battle, like to show what we're worth, if we can actually have a chance. And there's a moment in the, in the war, in this, in this battle scene, where the American soldiers, they realize the impossibility of winning the battle. Like you see it in their faces, but you see it in their actions as well. Like they begin retreating away from the battle. But Mel Gibson's character, we'll just call him the Patriot, he recognizes the importance of the moment. And he's already committed his life, no matter the cost. 
And as everybody else is retreating around him, he grabs the American flag from one of the retreating men, and he runs upstream. And he's screaming the words, no retreat, no retreat. Jesus has already given everything for you. That's what this meal is about. He's already given everything. So as we take a part in this meal, as we eat this meal together, let me ask you one question. Are you willing to give everything to him? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we stand in the shadow and in the beaming light of your love. A love that's not just in the words, a love that's not just in the example you gave us, but a love that brought you to your knees in front of religious leaders to remain silent and to make that proclamation that would lead you to the cross. I am. I am the Savior, I am the Messiah, and I am willing to go to the cross for everybody else. So God, as we share in this meal, Help us not only recognize the radical love that you showed us on that cross, but help us imagine what a radical love in response to it would look like. God, our Father, we eat this in remembrance of that broken body. May it give us life and substance. Thank you. Amen. Yes, God, what a Savior. And God, we remember in these moments as we pray to you, that God, not only was your body broken, but your, your blood was shed. And it's to establish this new covenant with your people. A covenant that says, no matter what, no matter what kind of brokenness you've brought into the world, what kind of brokenness resides inside of me, that God, you will provide and you still died and you can still cleanse it. That no matter who we come to, to this table, no matter our past, no matter the darkness that's riddled all over our heart, that God, it's still for us. And that you are just as willing to stand before the mockery of that court and to say, I am willing to still die for you. So God, as we take in this radical expression of the love that you showed for us, Help it wash over us and remind us that we are cleansed in your blood. And it's easy to come down on Peter and all the other disciples. I mean, I, I often find myself to myself, like stopping myself, like, come on, Peter. Like, the least you can do is acknowledge him. Like, acknowledge that you know him. You don't have to deny him. And three times, I mean, come on. But then again, what do you expect from somebody who, as we established in the beginning, kept their distance from Jesus? And it scares me to wonder how many of us are also keeping our distance from Jesus. Sure, we come to church on a regular basis. Right? There's, there, there might be Christian verses hanging up in our houses. Right? Maybe even our coworkers or people we go to school with, maybe they know that we're Christians. But that's not the question. The question is not, are you a Christian? The question is, when was the last time you did something radical for Jesus same way he did something radical for you. Like, do you attend church on a, on a fairly regular basis because you believe that's what you're supposed to do? Like, that's what good Christians do. So that's why I come. 
money to charity or to even to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on your standard of living. You choose what's popular based off of what's right or based off of what the world says is right. Do you really want to be saved from your sin? You just want to be saved from the penalty of it. Are you moved by stories about people who do radical things for Jesus, but it never moves you to action? Like that's for the extreme Christians out there. Do you rarely share your faith with your neighbors or your co-workers or, or your friends because you're afraid of being rejected in some way? Or at least you don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Do you gauge your morality or your goodness by comparing yourself to the standards of the world? Do you find yourself thinking more about the luxurious life on earth than you do the eternal life with God? Don't be satisfied with serving God your leftovers. And I'm speaking to myself here more than anybody else. For years, I gave God my leftovers. What was left of me, and I, I didn't feel any shame. And I didn't feel any shame because all I did was compare myself. I took my eyes off of Scripture, and I just compared myself to other people. Like the bones I was throwing to God had more meat on them than the bones other people were throwing to God. So I'm doing pretty good, right? I'm doing all right. But one day I had to stop calling it what it was. I had to stop calling it a busy schedule. I had to stop calling it bills. I had to stop calling it forgetfulness. I had to call it for what it really was. It was evil. And why was it evil? Because it wasn't love. And we've already looked at what love looks like this morning. Don't distance yourself from Jesus. Don't walk on the fringes, hoping to get through life okay. He sacrificed everything for you. So this is the invitation. This is it. However, unlike most Sundays where we invite hurting and broken people to come forward and receive prayer, which we'll still do, and we're always open for that. But what I want to do instead this morning is I want to invite the rest of us. You know, all the other ones of us. All of us who've gotten really good at holding our life together. The rest of us who've gotten really good at securing ourselves and, and securing our comfort and our well-being and our success. This is an invitation to do something radical. To show God a radical kind of love. That's what Jesus invites you into. So Father, I ask that you be with each and every one of us this week. Give us, give us opportunities to show the relationship that we have with you. And help someone else find their way. Father, give us a heart to do something radical. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.